Maybe not. It's good for me to see you. Okay, anyway, but so good to have you here. Hopefully we're unfreezing from the wintry weather we had. So glad that, that everybody was able to come in and, and be here. And, and hopefully uh, the only few power outages I heard, maybe a few, it's not too bad. I remember 2014, we had like three-quarters of an inch of ice. Y'all remember that, 2014? Some of you do. Didn't have power for 26 hours, which is a long time. But anyway, I pray that wouldn't happen. So glad that didn't happen. So good to have you here today. Well, there's a love letter that was found years ago, and a woman wrote it. And she said, Dearest Jimmy, no words could ever express the great unhappiness I felt since breaking our engagement. Please say you'll take me back. No one could ever take your place in my heart, so please forgive me. I love you. I love you. I love you. Yours forever, Marie. P.S. And congratulations on winning the state lottery. You know, it seems like sometimes we, we love people, not for who they are, but for what perhaps they might offer us, what perhaps they might give us, right? Uh, Mr. Jimmy here, poor Jimmy, he, uh, apparently he wasn't lovable enough, but when his situation changed and he could offer a little bit more, then this lady loved him again, of course. Uh, today we're looking at how to love Jesus. Do we love Jesus because of what he can give us? Or do we love him because of just simply who he is? Why and how do we love Jesus? That's what we're looking at today as we continue going through his life from the manger to the cross. Luke chapter 4, starting in verse 14. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. And he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll and gave it back to the attendant and sat down. And the eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. And they said, is not this Joseph's son? Heavenly Father, as we continue to worship here today, we do thank you for those that have been able to be here. We pray for those in our church family who we know that would like to be here but couldn't, who are recovering from sickness or what have you, Lord. We thank you they can watch online with our, uh, just the modern technologies that we have available. And so we thank you for being able to be here to worship in spirit and in truth, Father. 
Lord, I pray that as we look at this passage today, that you would show us how we can love you, why we should love you, and the ways we should love you. Lord, I pray that my words are yours today, that you speak through me with your spirit, and that today, Father, we'll leave here with a greater appreciation for just who you are, what you've done for us in our lives. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Today, I want to challenge you to love Jesus in three ways that we see here in this passage. To love Jesus in three ways that we see here in this scripture. Number one, we simply love Jesus for who he is. Love Jesus for who he is. Verse 14 says this, And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee, and a report about him went out through all the surrounding country. Where, where did he return from? Where, where, was he, where had he been? Well, he had returned in the power of the Spirit, but he had just endured 40 days of temptation in the desert by the devil. And he was victorious in this temptation. And after his preparation for ministry, it says here that a report about him went throughout all the surrounding country that his fame had started to spread. Now, the word glorified in this immediate context is not like how we would think about glorifying God, giving him proper praise and honor for who he is. It, it has this more of idea of being popular. It's a popular praise. In other words, at this beginning stage of Jesus' ministry, the general public was happy with him. Uh, he was teaching. The new things were coming out about him uh, that he was saying. He was performing miracles. This was that worldly praise that he was just getting the attention of. The, the people did not quite know who he was yet. They knew that his name was Jesus. They knew that he was from Nazareth, but they didn't want sure who he was. At this point, Jesus was kind of like a fad. He was kind of like a trend, if you will. And what's this Jesus person? Who is he? And everybody was kind of talking about Jesus and, and discussing Jesus. But as you know, many times fads kind of come and then they kind of go. And in the general public, where things are popular and unpopular, Jesus was popular at this point. He was the topic of discussion, but we know that his ultimate goal was not the praise of man. That was not his goal. But at this point, he was kind of the big thing, the next big thing out there. There was a man who lived out in the forest. His house had been overrun with mice. I remember when I lived out in the country about 10 years ago, I had never experienced that before. And there were some mice in our house, and, and I woke up one day, and, and I heard something next to me on my bedside table, and there was a mouse staring at me. And I screamed or something, and then it went into the drawer, and I pushed him in the drawer, and I, and I drug out my 50-pound uh, nightstand out of the house. You know? And uh, so then we had to figure out how to treat these mice. I never had to deal with it before. Well, this man had the same problem, but even worse. So he put out those black boxes of rat poison, distributed him throughout the whole house. And that night, he couldn't believe his ears. He could hear the mice eating the bait in the boxes, just right around. One even felt like it was like right close to his bed even. It was like a feeding frenzy. And, he, and sure enough, he woke up in the morning and he checked the boxes and they were just eaten clean, lit clean. No, no more of the poison in there. So the traps became very popular. And so to make sure it worked, he went out and bought some more boxes. And another night happened and it happened again. Even more mice came by this time and ate even more of it. 
and they went for that flavored poison. But after a few days, the feeding stopped because <laughs> there were no more mice around anymore to get that poison. And he realized it had worked. The mice got what they came for, and they never were heard from again. Now, Jesus, the gospel, is not rat poison. He's the truth. He's the way. He's the life. But the point is that when someone gives people something they want, they will like it until there's nothing left of it, and then they move on. Jesus was healing people, so people liked him. But many people liked him not for who he was. They didn't even know who he was yet. They liked him for what he could do for them in that moment. Here's a question for you. Do you love Jesus for who he is? Or do you only view Jesus as some type of genie in a bottle where you, you rub the bottle and the genie pops out and you get unlimited amount of wishes and sometimes they come true and, and sometimes they don't. When, when things are going well, you're praising God. But how about when things aren't going well? Do you still love Jesus? Or do we only love him when it looks like things are going well for us? We should love him for who he is. Well, who is he? Look at Psalm 46 1. It says that God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. God is where we can go for cover, He's where we go for protection, He's our refuge. We can hide away in God. He just doesn't just give us strength. He is our strength. When we have trouble, he's always there. And he's present even if we don't feel like he is, he's still present. Look at Psalm 9:9. The Lord is a stronghold from the oppressed, a stronghold in times of trouble. A stronghold is another name for a fort. It's a place that can hold down attacks, that can keep attacks away. When we're oppressed, when we're attacked, God is our fort. He's where we can go for safety. Years ago when I was young, there was some undeveloped land back behind my house, and there was a fence that I was told from my parents to never climb and go behind. But we did it from time to time. Because you know, back then, there's no cell phones, and you just left and came back hours later, you know, because you can't imagine that happening now. But that's what we did. And back behind that undeveloped land, we'd play all sorts of games and everything, and, and we'd build forts, and it was kind of cool because you could have your own little private space where you kind of just hide out and, and just be by yourself. Even today, I walked into my daughter's room one day, and she had built this fort everywhere with blankets and chairs and everything. It was kind of cool to kind of crawl in there, though once I crawled in, I couldn't crawl out, you know what I mean? But it's kind of cool for children to build forts, and I think part of the reason is it's because it seems like a safe place. Seems like you can just hide there. You can just stay there. Right? That's how God is. He's safe. But not only is he safe, he, he'll never leave us. Look at Hebrews 13.5. The writer is quoting when God spoke to Joshua, and he's talking about keeping your life, he says, free from the love of money, and be content with what you have. For he has said, and he quotes Joshua, I will never leave nor forsake you. Now, he's quoting how God talked to Joshua, but because the, the author of Hebrews says that we can claim it for our lives as well. 
And in this context, he's saying, don't be worried about what you have or chasing after what you don't have. Be content. Why can you be content? Because I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. That's who God is. Never leaves us. Never forsakes us. We've all probably been abandoned before. You know how that feels. When I was a young kid, one time my mom was late picking me up from school, like an hour late, and I thought that they just, she wouldn't ever come back when I was a little guy. That feeling is scary. God will never leave us. He'll never abandon us. So we need to love Jesus for who he is. Secondly, love Jesus for what he says. Love Jesus for what he says. Verse 16. And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and he stood up to read. Now each town at the time had its own synagogue where the Jews would worship. People would gather to hear God's word being read. They would hear God's word being taught. They would sing some psalms. They would recite scripture very similar to what we do here every Sunday morning. It was part of their weekly rhythms, which is a big part of the reason why we do what we do. Each synagogue had a rabbi, though, who kind of ruled. and It was pretty much a complete authority. That rabbi had, much like you'd have a pastor, but this rabbi was the ruler. And it wasn't uncommon for the ruler of that synagogue to invite other rabbis or visiting rabbis to come and read God's word and teach God's word, which we do here from time to time as well. This is what was happening here. And this is Jesus' first recorded sermon. Now, it's not also not unusual for some denominations, uh, some Episcopal, Lutheran, Catholic churches, they'll have like a three-year plan where if you go preach, uh, you can look ahead three years in advance and know what, what sermon that pastor will be preaching on that day. And they kind of got that from the Jewish way of doing things, and this was the same way they did it. So Isaiah just probably was the section of the day. So Jesus gets up to read, and they say, well, here's the, here's the section, and read it. And they hand him the scroll. And he starts to read it, verse 17. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. And he unrolled the scroll, and he found the place where it was written. So Jesus takes Isaiah, he unrolls it, and he reads it. What does the scripture say? Well, here Isaiah is prophetically speaking as the Messiah. So Jesus is reading Isaiah who is speaking as if he was this coming Savior that was prophesied. Now the Jews knew this passage was about the Messiah. They knew what it was about. And so as Jesus reads this, the people were thinking about that promised Messiah, that promised Savior that will come one day to save God's people, and they're thinking about what he would be like and what he would do. But the interesting thing is you have the Messiah himself reading it about himself. Now, they're not picking up on this quite yet. Verse 18, he reads it. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the first thing he says here in this scripture is that the Messiah would have the Spirit of God upon him. 
Well, Jesus had that. When he was baptized, the Spirit of God fell upon him. Look at Matthew chapter 3. It says this, that when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened up to him. And when he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him, and a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. So the Messiah would have the Spirit of God upon him. What would he do? Well, Isaiah tells us right here, and he quotes it. Verse 18 says that he would proclaim good news to the poor. He would proclaim freedom to those who are captive. He would restore sight to those who are blind. He would give freedom to those who were oppressed. But this wasn't just literal poverty. It wasn't literal captivity. It wasn't literal blindness or literal physical oppression. The Messiah would give good news of salvation to the spiritually poor, that is the lost. He would give good news of salvation. He would free those who are captive in sin. He would open the eyes of the spiritually blind to the truth of who God is. He would free those who were oppressed by their sin. That's what the Messiah would do. He would save mankind from their spiritual blindness and their spiritual captivity and their spiritual poverty and their spiritual oppression. He would be a complete Savior. That's who Jesus is because this is who Jesus says he is. So we need to love Jesus for what he has actually said, right? Not for what we want him to say, not for what we think he should have said, not for what we want him not to say. We need to love him for what he's actually said. There are a lot of ideas that will creep into the church, a lot of sayings that creep into the church from time to time that are not Christian. It's ironic, but they're not. And they're not things that Jesus has said or God's word has said. Listen to a couple of these following phrases. None of these are in the Bible, but sometimes we, they're attributed to that. Here's one. I like this one, actually. It's just not biblical. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Amen. I like it. It's not in the Bible. I love clean, but it's not in the Bible. It's important for us, right? But it's not biblical. It was actually written in a Jewish book, but it's not in Scripture. Here's another one. To thine own self be true. That is Shakespeare. Not in the Scripture. Here's another one that you've probably even said before. God helps those who help themselves. It's not in Scripture. Actually, most people believe Ben Franklin was the person who would can be attributed for that phrase. And then here's one that's kind of tricky. Because it, it's not in the Bible, but it, it kind of is. God will never give you more than you can handle. Now, it's not in the Scripture. It's a paraphrase from 1 Corinthians that says that God will not tempt you more than you can bear. So the point is not to say you can do anything because God will allow you to do anything. The point is when you can't handle something, then you rely on Jesus for that thing. That's the difference. God will give you more than you can handle a lot of times, which is why he wants you to go to him. And in him you can handle anything. That's what the point is. He will not tempt you with more than you can bear and then you can run to Jesus. So we need to know our Bibles. We need to, to know and love Jesus for what he actually said, not what we want him to have said. So that's number two. And finally, number three, 
We love Jesus for what he has done. Now, this seems contradictory to the first point. Love him for what he can give us? Well, we shouldn't love Jesus only for what he's done for us or what he can do for us. But we do love him for what he has done for us. So on some level, it is about us because he does save us. And he saves, it's about everyone else that he's willing to save that turns to him. So he has done something for us, so we do love him for that. Look at verse 20. After he read, it says he rolled up the scroll and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down. And all the eyes of the synagogue were fixed on him. Now back in the day, this was what you would do. You would stand up to read scripture. And after you read it, you would sit down. And then at that point, uh, he could teach or preach if he wanted to, which is kind of nice. Sit down, it was very kind of laid back. And so I guess there would be a little chair off to the side. And that rabbi would sit down. If he wanted to speak on it, he could. If he didn't, he didn't have to. It wasn't always 30 minutes and three points. Sometimes it had been maybe five minutes. Sometimes it would be nothing. So when he sat down, they were curious to see if this Jesus, who they knew, would actually start preaching. What would, they, what would he do? Think about this Jesus who, who uh, they knew all too well who he was. This is Nazareth. This is, the, this is the synagogue he probably grew up in. Most of the people out there were probably just excited to see someone they knew preaching. I remember the first sermon I ever preached. The great thing about seminary was, they, at least when I was there, they made you go out and ask pastors, hey, can I preach? I have to have so many hours of preaching, right, to pass this class actually in churches. And also a lot of times you get like a Sunday night or a Wednesday night. So my very first sermon was a Sunday night in a church, my grandmother's church up in Rock Hill, South Carolina. And I didn't want the pastor to know that it was my first sermon. Did not want a big deal. I just wanted to get it over with, right? Grandmother sitting out there. She taught the senior adult ladies Sunday school class. She was out there watching, you know. So I'm sitting there on the front row, and uh, the pastor who I'd known for a while as well, he'd been there a long time, and we were getting ready, and this lady was doing a little solo on Sunday night, finishing up her solo, and I was getting ready to get up there and preach, and he looked at me and he said, is this your first sermon? Now, I'm not going to lie right before I preach, right? <laughs> so I said, yeah, it is. Well, I wish you would have told me. We made a big deal about it. I was like, yeah, I didn't want you to make a big deal about it. And, uh, and he said, well, and then he told me a quick story why this lady's finishing up her solo. And he said, he said, well, you know, I remember my first sermon very well. I had it planned out, and I thought I was going to be preaching for 40 minutes. I got up there, and I was done in 12 minutes. Good luck. <laughs> I was like, thanks. And I walked up and preached, and it was longer than 12 minutes, thankfully. Right? But they're probably just excited that here's this, here's this boy they all knew. And, and, and then he says something that, just kind of goes over their head because they're just like, oh, isn't that great, Jesus, the carpenter's son? And he says something and it just kind of goes over their head. And he says this in verse 21, today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they're like, oh, isn't that nice? What he's saying is, I'm the Messiah. They didn't quite understand it. They didn't quite understand what he was saying. And as he continued to speak, and we'll see more next week about what he said, it says, verse 22, all spoke well of him and marveled at the gracious words that were coming from his mouth. But they did not piece together the puzzle. He's talking about himself. Maybe some of them thought, oh, yeah, we know that scripture. Or, oh, maybe the Messiah is here or coming. We don't know. 
They were just excited to know that their hometown boy was preaching and teaching in their synagogue. His family was there. You know, my grandmother, she said it was the best sermon she'd ever heard preached. She did tell me to talk slower, but other than that, it was great. Probably thought the same way with their family, right? Such a plain and clear sentence went right over their heads. Shortly after the 1912 presidential election, Woodrow Wilson visited one of his older aunts who was getting on late in life. He hadn't seen in a long time, and she said, what are you doing these days, Woodrow? And he said, well, I've just been elected president. <laughs> and she said, oh, yeah, president of what? He said, of the United States. And she said, don't be silly. <laughs> she didn't really believe him and didn't know. It wasn't like the Internet back then where she could pull out her phone and Google. You know, sometimes familiarity can drown out the amazing, amen? Sometimes being familiar can just kind of drown out the amazing things. You know, we, we have the opportunity to come and worship Jesus every week if we want to. Many of you have heard the gospel preached many times in your life. And sometimes it doesn't amaze us like it should. Because we've heard it so many times. We've heard it before. Have we forgotten who Jesus is and have we forgotten what it is he's done? Does the familiarity of it just kind of go over our heads? Here's a familiar passage and a familiar person and Jesus says, it's me. And it just goes right over their heads. What has he done? Look at 1 Peter 2, verse 22. Peter says that he, Jesus, committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you've been healed. Look what Colossians 2 says about what Jesus did. You... Who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your heart, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with his legal demands, that this he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And then Philippians 2 says this Being found in human form, Jesus, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that in the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. That is what Jesus has done. We need to love Jesus for who he is. We need to love Jesus for what he's said. And today, as we leave, we do need to love him for what he's done. Now, he has purchased salvation for those that would receive him. Heavenly Father, as we close our time together today, we thank you so much who you are in Christ Jesus. As we enter into this time of commitment, Lord, I pray that we would 
check our own hearts and, and ask ourselves, am I loving God for who you are, Lord? Not just what you can give me. Even though you give me great things. Even though you give us grace. Do I love you for who you are and your nature? Lord, do we love you for what you've said in your word? Lord, so much in your word is countercultural. So much of your word offends those who reject it. Lord, but do we love you for that? Because we know that your word is life. Your word is truth. So, Father, help us love you for what you've said. And then, Lord, help us love you for what you've done in our lives and what you will do in our lives. But not only that, let us love you for the whole package. Father, we, we do love you. We pray that we will continue to love you. And Lord, if there's one here that's never placed their faith in you before, that today they would do so today. And, today and, that, and that also one day in the future they would do as they saw today. As they saw a new believer giving his life to Christ through baptism, that they also would do that one day. And in that imagery show what it means to be raised to walk in the newness of life in Christ. Father, we thank you for what you've done for us. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You stand today and worship today and make the decisions you need to make today as the band plays.